Anderson Cooper with CNN once interviewed Christopher Hitchens, a well-known and outspoken atheist, before approaching his final months of living on earth. Mr. Hitchens had been diagnosed with cancer, and it was a type of cancer that he knew he had little chance to survive. Prior to his death, which did occur in December of 2011, at 62 years of age, many people on major news stations and other media platforms that admired Mr. Hitchens for his public debates, his writings, and his personal interactions tried to get as many last words from Mr. Hitchens as they could. Some interviewers were curious if whether or not the threat of imminent death would change his mind about God, faith, and his anti-religion beliefs. The following is an excerpt from that interview that Anderson Cooper had with Christopher Hitchens. Cooper said, I know that you know that there are people praying for you. There are prayer groups, actually. And you've talked about that a little bit. What do you think about that? That people are praying for you. Hitchens responded, there are people praying for me to suffer and die. And they have lavished websites relishing my death. And then there are people, much more numerous, I should say, and nicer, that are praying that I either get better or that I redeem myself or make peace with the Almighty, that my soul gets saved, even if my wretched carcass does not. And some pray for both. In fact, the 20th of September has been designated, quote, everyone pray for Hitchens Day on one website. In case you want to mark your calendar for that, I shall not be partaking of that. Cooper then asked, so you don't pray at all? Hitchens quickly replied, no, no, that's all meaningless to me. From another journalist's interview with Mr. Hitchens, it was recorded that he even found a website inviting people to put money on whether he would renounce his atheism and embrace religion by a certain date or to continue affirm his unbelief and take the hellish consequences. Hitchens goes on to say in that interview, quote, what if I pull through and the pious faction contentedly claimed that their prayers had been answered? That would somehow be irritating, he wrote. I don't mean to be churlish about any kind intentions, but when September 20th comes, please do not trouble deaf heaven with your bootless cries, unless, of course, it makes you feel better. Friends, when life is painful and perplexing, and when our lives on earth are drawing to a close, what we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, and even what we believe about prayer, it will come to the light. Now, for Mr. Hitchens, he wasn't trying to fool anyone. I'll give you that. He lived as one who rejected the notion that prayer was useful, mainly because he rejected the reality of God even existing. In that sense, Mr. Hitchens was at least consistent. He died as he lived. A man accepting his diagnosis with terminal cancer, but happily settled in his unbelief. But for us this morning who call ourselves Christians, I wonder if our beliefs in God are always consistent with how we pray or don't pray. I wonder if we're consistent 
with what we say we believe about God when we face times and circumstances in our lives of which we live. So how about it? The circumstances that you and I face right now, the times of which we are living in our nation right now, in what ways is your faith being ruled or clouded by your feelings? In what ways is your faith being rocked, leaving you habitually afraid, stressed out of your mind, and even chronically complaining about your present lot in life? In what ways have you and I lost sight of the facts about God and his committed love to us? And then what are we going to do about it? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 31. Psalm 31. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 263. If you don't have a Bible at home, you can read. You can take that as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 31. Psalm 31 is penned by David. and was used both for personal prayers and songs for the people of Israel to draw renewed strength from. That's why in the heading, right there, the very superscription or top of the psalm, you see, to the choir master. Your translation might say to the worship leader or to the chief musician. And that means that God had intended to use David's prayer and his testimony, as he, God often does, to minister to the masses in the nation of Israel, but also minister to the masses throughout history, including us today in 2023. This psalm in particular is a psalm of lament. So if you've paid attention to some of the songs this morning, both to the lyrics and the tone, it's matching the tone of the psalm. This is a psalm of David's personal sorrows, his laments, and a crying out to God for help. But it's also a psalm where we see the faith of David get tested and then restored. A faith that will be tested like ours too. And that by God's grace can be restored with hope by the same faithful God that David loved. Friends, this same faithful God that preserved the David of Psalm 31 is the same God that woke us up this morning here in 2023. Psalm 31, to the choir master, a psalm of David. Please follow with me. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your namesake, you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. 
My eye is wasted from grief. My soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Oh, Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak instantly against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is God's word. We're not told exactly the specific details of when David is writing this psalm, but we can look for enough clues to get a feel for what he's facing. Contained within these 24 verses of the psalm are a stack full of problems David is up against. And as it is common with many of the psalms, we'll try to summarize this stack of problems into two stacks or two pressures David is facing. There are external pressures, and there are internal pressures. There are external pressures, and there are internal pressures. And we're probably familiar with that, right? In counseling someone, you're trying to figure out what's going on in their life in general, circumstances, and what's going on in their heart personally. Uh, external pressures, we know what those are. They're difficulties and hardships that press in on us from the outside. Usually they're things that we can't control, at least most of the time. That could be wars, natural disasters, the economy, employers or employees, evil and ungodly people, even all the way down to the decisions our parents make, our spouses make, our siblings make, our children make or even our friends make. Friends, many of these people that we care about and love, 
we can't prevent everything they will say or do. These external pressures could also be as a result of authority structures we are required to submit under and might be hard to do so for a variety of reasons. And then there is simply the mysterious providence of God when he sovereignly chooses to bring thorns and storms into our lives that we didn't see coming. Trials that refine and test our faith and bring to the service the dross of our sin and the lack of faith we didn't know we had. Friends, what are those external pressures you're facing right now? I mean, what are they? What people, what problems, what places, what deadlines, what events are bringing you to the end of yourself? What is pressing in on you, squeezing you from the outside in ways that you cannot control? Well, maybe write those down this week so that you can see clearly what you think those external pressures are. And then there's internal pressures too, right? Internal pressures are those battles and struggles we face inside our hearts. You might be having one right now, being here at church. Maybe you're new here, or maybe you've had a really hard week, or maybe you've made some really bad decisions last night, or you're struggling with some form of doubt today about tomorrow. And right now, sitting in these chairs and in those pews, there is a war and a kicking and fighting and screaming though you look calm on the outside. That's what I'm talking about, those those heart pressures, those thought pressures, which taken together can often lead to an internal web of knots, a web of confusion with our feelings that usually leads us to having a distorted and disillusionment outlook on life. These internal pressures can certainly be exasperated by external ones. That means internal conflict and internal stresses can also be made worse on someone due to things like sickness or injury, aging, other bodily abnormalities or handicaps, hormonal imbalances, and other physiological challenges. But these internal pressures can also be brought about by experiencing a faith crisis. That dark, cold night of the soul. Questioning God's love for you. Questioning the very presence of God. Believing false things about God to the point you're tempted to walk away from the faith altogether. And friends, that happens when we're not grasping the word of God as the anchor for our souls. And instead, we're listening to our vacillating feelings, our vacillating thoughts over the unchanging facts of the scriptures. And of course, there's the most obvious battle we face inside, and that is personal sin. Love it, it's important for all of us to get this reality squared away in our minds right now. Sin is both a heart and attitude issue as much as it is an action or outward disobedience issue. Sin is a heart and attitude issue as much as it is an action or outward disobedience issue. 
when our sinful flesh is being fed instead of starved, the fight for faith will slowly turn into a resignation to quit. Then we start swimming in doubts, feeding our pride and selfishness and spiritual apathy. And before we know it, we're sinking to the bottom of the ocean floor of unbelief. Without realizing, we find ourselves slowly growing complacent and comfortable, even with little pet sins. Sins that we've made excusable in our life. They've become like literally a pet. You've become so familiar with it, I've become so familiar with it, that we just kind of continue to live with this sin as if it's normal. These are secret sins that no one knows except God. They seem small, they seem innocent, but if they're not put to death and dealt with, those sins grow. They're no longer pets, they're monsters, and they devour us. Friends, it's, it's as Christians, this kind of internal pressure, this kind of internal conflict, this kind of internal revolt against our Lord will always lead true Christians miserable, regretful, and empty in the end. So, what are those internal pressures you're facing right now? What emotions, what feelings, if the emotional wallet of our life was opened up for us to see and for others who are trying to shepherd and care for us, if they were to see what's really going on right here, what would they find. Write those down. Take those external pressures and those internal and think about them this week in light of what we're going to find out in Psalm 31. Here in Psalm 31, David gets raw, transparent, quick, fast, in a hurry with both external and internal pressures that's going on in his life. So friends, if you find yourself in this situation and if you're a Christian, you're going to face this because you're living in a fallen world that is raging against what we were made to live for. Friend, Psalm 31 might just be the timely medicine for all our souls. Let's look together first at David's external pressures. At verse 4, notice he says there, You take me out of the net they have hidden from me, for you are my refuge. David appears to be in a situation where others are wanting to trick him, set him up for failure, do him harm, see his reputation ruined, his career ended, trap him in order to take him out. He recounts there in verse 4 that God had taken him out of the net, but notice what they did with that net. They had hidden for me. So what was the net that David is referring to? Well, it's his Hebrew poetry here. It's a metaphorical way of saying a hidden scheme, a landmine, a plan to do him wrong, to see him fail, to take him out of context in a conversation, to frame him, have him charged, maligned, and exposed in the public eye, ultimately with the aim to have him removed from people's favorite people list and added to the list of people to avoid. Throughout the psalm, it appears the hidden net was pretty intense too. It was so intense that that secret net became public in nature and was deeply personal in its attack. Look down with me at verse 21. What he says in verse 21 for another clue. 
David says, blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. That means the city he was in was basically barricaded either by men or chariots or both. He was being surrounded in the very city he probably lived in and reigned as king in. These men wanted to arrest him, have him put in their custody. They wanted to do whatever they could to pin him in and keep them under the thumb of their control. They wanted to put David on their manipulative dog leash to make him do whatever they wanted him to do. And to that end, we shouldn't think of this hidden net as some kind of friendly hide-and-seek game or capture the flag. No, David was being stalked pursued, petitioned, and ridden of any human privacy, all in order to have him extinct from people's minds. Friends, this was cancel culture before that was a popular word in our era. In our modern day, David would have been, had books written about him and against him, magazines, websites, blogs, YouTube videos, campaign commercials, TikTok marketing, Twitterverse attacks, mass text messages, town hall meetings, and online petitions all hurled against him at once. Think bigger here. It's not a skirmish with one person. The whole city, the whole community is being barricaded and he's being hemmed in on to do him harm. So what kind of people is David up against? Sounds pretty wild, extreme, absurd. Well, verse 6, you see there in verse 6a, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. These people were idolaters, David said. What are idolaters? Well, it's those who worship false gods. He says they were worthless, empty, meaningless, and vain idols. By implication, these were people who hated Yahweh, hated the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God of the nations, in particular Israel here, and David's Lord. These were people who thought praying to David's God who is our God too, by the way, would have been meaningless, a waste of time, a placebo effect at best. People that in their attitudes spoke just like Christopher Hitchens did before he died. People who might be pleasant to talk to until you bring God and the Bible in the conversation. These are people like many of us might go to work with live besides, or possibly even people in our own immediate or distant family. So let's get really contextual and very contemporary and very right now. In the month of June right now, the pagan world in which we currently live is celebrating Pride Month. Ironically, pride is the root of all that pride. The rainbow flag is boldly and without shame Tagged, copied, and pasted, and even flown outside of windows, offices, schools, and all over the media. People who are glorying in their sinful debauchery of sexual sin, transgender propaganda, 
and perversion of God's good and wise institution of marriage and human sexuality. And you might be in close proximity to someone who themselves are not living in that kind of lifestyle, but they give approval, applause, and affirmation of those who commit such shameful acts. And they say things like this, well, I'm proud of that person. Whatever makes them happy, I'm all for equality. Aren't you? Friends, we're living in a day and time where loving our neighbor has been wrongly equated with approving whatever they do. Friends, that's not biblical love. That is not biblical love. That shows up in so many places in the media, but even in churches. People think love is simply approving and affirming of what people do. Friends, that's not biblical love. True love, according to the scriptures, is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. True love, according to scripture, is loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And and though we're not the final judge of anyone's soul, uh, God's got that. And thus, we ourselves cannot pour out personal justice on anyone's sin, speaking the truth in love. As witnesses for Jesus, it will require convictional courage. It will require spirit-filled boldness. It does require God-fearing fortitude. It requires the love of God to control us, to love people so much to tell them the truth about God and his word, even if it's costly to do so. Uh, Friends, that means for some of you here, your job will be in jeopardy if it isn't already within the next three to five years. If God does not show mercy on this country, the way we're going, it is going to become more commonplace for Christians to be more and more muzzled for us to bow down to the idol and God of self. Friends, this is real Christianity. Christianity has been experienced like this all around the world for centuries. And it's catching up to America quick, fast, and in a hurry. So friends, keep this in mind. It requires a lot more courage and a whole lot more true love to tell someone the truth with a heart bleeding with concern for them than it is to go with the flow, to go along to get along with the crowd, to keep everyone in the family capiche and yet remain cowardly silent. Brothers and sisters, every situation we find ourselves in requires godly wisdom and nuanced application on a case-by-case situation. I'm not saying go grab a pulpit and go do street preaching when you're not sure what you're preaching. I'm not saying go get fired on Monday, just because you're zealous for the things of God. No, that might be pretty foolish in some situations. Uh, There are situations where being quiet in certain situations is wise. But as a general principle for Christians, to be utterly and always silent about God, the gospel, and what his word teaches in our families, in our churches, in our schools, in our jobs, in politics, 
in the public square, in the hair salon, at the gym, with moms on the playground, with guys at the golf course, hunting, or whatever your hobby is. Friends, anytime we are utterly and always silent as ambassadors for Jesus, our silence can be seen as approval. And that's not giving Jesus a good name. Ephesians 5.11 says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We should never forget what Romans chapter 1 teaches too, right? I would encourage you to camp out on Romans 1. Maybe this week. All people know that the one true God exists. He made it plain to everyone all over the planet through creation as the creator. But man in his depravity, whether you're Christopher Hitchens or someone in your family suppresses that truth, they do so in unrighteousness. And right there in Romans 1, in the list of the sins that the wrath of God has poured out against, did you know that idolatry and homosexuality and all the other vices that right now characterize much of our nation is there in Romans 1? Listen carefully. You don't even need to turn there. I just want you to hear it. Romans 1, 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameful act, shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Friends, these are the kind of people that existed in David's day. He's talking about idolaters, slanderers, murderers, schemers. These are the same kind of people living in the Apostle Paul's day of Romans chapter 1. And friends, if it were not for the grace of God rescuing us from ourselves, our names would be tagged with all those descriptions right next to it. Over the pathway towards idolatry and any form of sinful lifestyle always begins with making a choice. Which God will I serve? The God of Scripture or a created God that my sinful heart clings to? That means this, there are no true atheists in the world. The question is not, does God exist? The question is this, which God do you serve? Oh, may God have mercy to us to make the same wise choice that David did. Look at verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. And you could tag in idols there, worldview, religion, etc. But I trust in the Lord. And David continues describing what these men were like who brought about all these external pressures in his life. Verse 8. If you look with me in verse 8, David refers to these idolaters as his enemy, the hand of the enemy. Now, why does he call him his enemy? I mean, did, was David mean? Was he a bully? No, remember, David's God's appointed king in a theocratic nation of Israel. So to oppose the king that God's appointed was to oppose God in his kingdom himself. So in verse 11, David goes on. He calls them his adversaries. His adversaries had caused so much problems for David that they had spread their evil influence against David, watch this, by sabotaging his reputation towards other people that David knew personally, like friends, neighbors, colleagues. For David, it would have even been Perhaps those in his own kingdom. Perhaps even for us today, it might be people in a church. Look at verse 11. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach. Listen to this. Especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Friends, spiritual warfare is real. Spiritual warfare is real. And one of the ways you'll know you're in spiritual warfare is when you and I are attacked on a deeply personal level. People calling your character into question. People calling you a liar, painting you to be someone who can't be trusted, someone that is a spiritual fraud, deceitful, and should be avoided and ignored. And friends, if none of those accusations stick... If none of those accusations are held up, then that's what the Bible calls slander. Or in legal terms, our lawyers in here will know this, defamation of character. Smearing someone's reputation to take them out. Friends, there's only one place, one place where rank unrepentant slander comes from. It comes from the accuser 
of the brothers, the adversary himself, the devil. He uses people as mouthpieces and microphones to get his slandering work done. Beloved, behind slander that could be spewed your way or your family's way or others that you deeply love is an invisible war of the demonic realm, hurling all sorts of attacks at those who love King Jesus, and especially at those who God is using mightily to build up his church and to see his gospel advance. Ephesians 6.12 is a good one to camp out on, because right now reading Psalm 31, you're thinking, well, I haven't had like a whole city try to barricade against me. Yeah, that's because you and I see physical enemies only in Psalm 31. Paul says in Ephesians 6, we've got them all around us, and they're all in this city. Ephesians 6, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's humans. Paul, what are you talking about? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, as Christians, we should not look for the devil under every bush. We don't blame the devil on our colds. And we certainly don't blame the devil on our own sin. But external pressures, such as when we face persecution, slander, and lives, when those things are involved, you best believe spiritual warfare is taking place. It's fierce, it's relentless, and it is always deeply personal. The attacks will be flung at you as they were flung at our Lord Jesus if they slandered, maligned, and persecuted him. They will also slander, malign, and persecute those who boldly, publicly, and courageously follow him. For David, these false gods were demonic in nature. For behind these idolatrous enemies who opposed David and David's God, they hated David ultimately because they hated God. They rejected David because they reject the God David worshipped. Look at verse 13. It just continues on, for I hear the whispering of many. You know, many explosions in relationships began by whisper campaigns. Terror on every side as they scheme together. There's that secret plot again as they plot to take my life. Uh, David just continues to take this massive brush and paint dark strokes on how evil these people's intent was towards him. Uh, Verse 15, he calls them enemies again, as well as persecutors. Look at verses 17 and 18. David prays, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked, speaking of their character and their spiritual depravity, be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol, the place of the dead. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently, insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. And then verse 20, he mentions the same refrain again, the plots of men and the strife of tongues. Friends, taking all these descriptions together, their poisonous pride and their demonic plots, David wants them to stop. Be quiet. Leave me alone. Stop spreading your slander. Stop surrounding me, suffocating me, making life miserable for me. He's pleading with God, get me out of this house, get me out of this city, get me out of this fill in the blank. 
These people are relentless. Lord, deliver me or take them down. Have you been there? Someone that's like a thorn in your side and they just won't stop bringing affliction and stress and drama and anxiety and problems into your life? That's where David was at. Either deliver me from this situation or let them meek the grave. David doesn't want them to have a platform, a voice, or influence anymore. In the public square, in the public arena, nowhere in his life, David wants more than anything, not only his comfort and restoration, but God's glory and God's truth to be famous. David, out of a desire to see the righteous prevail and the wicked fail, he prays that they would just no longer even exist on earth. Friends, we should pray for our enemies, and we should pray for unbelievers to be converted. We were once an enemy of God, and the only reason we're now his friend is by mercy and grace. Pray for unbelievers to be converted, but we should also pray, come Lord Jesus, come, that Jesus would judge the world that remains hostile to him. David's external pressures were not only the only pressures we see here, he also had internal ones. And this becomes the most human-like, I can resonate with this part of the sermon. Verse 7, look at this, verse 7. He mentions affliction. It's another translation could say tribulation or pressures from within. Distress of the soul. Verse 9, he repeats it again in a prayer, but then he expands on how much this stress inside had an effect on his body. Look at verses 9 and 10. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Verse 10, for my life is spent with sorrow, my years with sighing. It could be even translated groaning. My strength. My vitality fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Now that's interesting. We've been talking all about enemies and opponents and adversaries and ungodly men. But David says in the midst of all this, my strength fails because of my iniquity. What is iniquity? It's sin. And it's David's. Sin. In the process of David enduring troubles and external pressures, the Lord is bringing to the surface and revealing to him sin in his own heart. My strength fails because of my disobedience, my spiritual apathy. My lust, my greed, my fear of man, just whatever the blank is for you and me. Friends, God can use sinful people who sin against us to reveal sin in us. God can use sinful people who sin against us to reveal sin in us. God can even use injustice. Major transitions in life and work and relationships and family. He can even use church hurt 
and church disappointment to reveal and expose hidden sin lurking in all our hearts. Beloved, that means one of the ways we redeem our trials is not asking God to take them away, but to reveal in us what does not please him. Maybe this could be a prayer this week. Father, with this trouble I'm facing, make me more troubled by the sin you see in me. Search my heart, O God, and uproot within me whatever is keeping me from deeper fellowship with you. You'll also notice both in verse 1 and 17, David is calling on God to deliver him, rescue him, save him, and not be made looking like a fool. He doesn't want to be disappointed. He wants to see God come through. He doesn't want to be left in shame for his witness for God. Look at verse 1. Psalm 31, verse 1, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Verse 17, O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. And David had become so weary from his external and internal stresses and pressures that he felt forgotten, overlooked, as if no one even thought about him anymore. Look at verse 12. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. Friends, sometimes people are depressed and it leads to their death because they're that painfully lonely. They literally live their life, even if people are around them, as if they're never on anyone's mind. Basically, David says that people viewed him out of sight, out of mind. David felt like a broken vessel. That's basically another way of saying yesterday's trash. I mean, how many of us are thinking about yesterday's trash? Well, I guess if you haven't taken it out yet, you, I guess, have. But you throw it away, and then you move on with life. He began to feel that no one cared about his suffering. No one noticed his pain. He felt like he was all alone. People saw through him, walked past him, and forgot him. He says that he felt, did you notice this one? Forgotten like one who is dead. We know what that means, right? You don't need to know Hebrew language to get that poetry. When someone dies, the funeral's over, the obituary gets new pictures and new descriptions. What happens? Weeks and months go by, right? Your closest people check on you, or they check on someone, you check on them. And then, really, the radio waves get silent. And then an anniversary of their death comes up, and then some people remember. But then what happens year two, year three, year four? People stop thinking about that person as much. That's what David said. I feel like while I'm living on earth as if I've already died and no one cares. That's deep. This is hopelessness defined. That is the bottom of the ocean floor of unbelief and feeling abandoned, forgotten, overlooked, erased from people's minds. David had come to an all-time low Not just what people thought of him, but even what he thought God 
thought of him. Look with me in verse 22, the first half of verse 22. Notice what he says about God now. I had said in my alarm, that means in haste or in panic, I am cut off from your sight. Friends, have you ever been there before? Have you ever been brought so low to begin thinking that God has cut you off? Heaven has closed its blinds on you. The front door and the back door to heaven's gates have been locked, bolted, and shut towards you. Have you ever looked to heaven and began to believe that heaven was deaf to your cries, to your prayers, to your asking God to help you, to deliver you? Have you ever gotten to that point where you actually started believing God doesn't see your stress? God doesn't hear your prayers. God doesn't care about your depression, your anxiety, your fear, your anger, your bitterness, your hurt, your betrayals by others, your utter disappointment in the way life appears to turn out for you, your utter disappointment the way your marriage is unhappy and unfulfilling. Your child hasn't turned out the way you always wanted. Marriage and having a family seems like it may not be in the cards for you. Have you been there? Have you ever said the words to God and about God in the heat of the moment that now you know was not true? Thomas Watson once said this, murmuring, complaining, springs from pride thinking you deserve better at God's hand. And when the heart begins to swell, it spits poison. Murmuring also springs from distrust, for men do not believe that God can make medicine out of poison and bring good out of all their troubles. Men murmur at God's providences because they distrust his promises. In the heat of the moment, friends, we can also say things not only about God to God, but about God to others And we can sin against others when we are brought really low. Think about the things that you and I have said, even in recent weeks or months, that we now regret. When we were stressed, we were pressed, we were hurt, we were alone, and we were feeling lonely, we've probably said things that we now regret, right? Charles Spurgeon once said, We generally speak amiss when we are in a hurry. Hasty words are but for a moment on the tongue, but they often lie for years on the conscience. So what should we do when we're not doing well? Spiritually, emotionally, and we're just at a really low moment in our life. George Whitfield once gave really good advice. Be humble, talk little, think, and pray much. Be humble, talk little, think, and pray much. Friends, why is it that what we believe about God isn't always consistent with how we live. David was inconsistent. I know I'm inconsistent. 
I know you're inconsistent. Friends, I have two insights, I think, drawn from the principles of Psalm 31 and really human experience for the reason why this inconsistency is so consistent in our life. Two reasons. Number one, intellectual pride. Intellectual pride. Intellectual pride says this, if I was God, I would run this world different. If I was God, I would run my life different. I would have done this with my family, this with the church, this with my sickness, this, 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 and this. God, I could have done this better than you and that better than you. It's when we look to God and say, God, you have failed. I can do better than you. It's intellectual pride. That's one reason why we are so inconsistent in our relationship with him. Second issue is, this is a term I'm just coining new, so if it's kind of botched up grammar-wise, bear with me. Subjection or subjective emotional idolatry. Subjective emotional idolatry. Subjective emotional idolatry says this, my emotions and my feelings are what are most important to me. They can be trusted. My emotions, therefore, should never be challenged, called into question, or corrected by anyone. In this sin, we often make the mistake, and it's very common in Southern Baptist circles, the still small voice of God is often wrongly equated with the desires of our hearts. Friends, when we are unplugged from truth about God, we begin listening for things that God has never said, and we listen to our feelings, but not, thus saith the Lord. Here in Psalm 31, this is written in a cyclical way. This is why this psalm is so encouraging. It's like rinse and repeat, faith and struggle, faith and struggle, faith and struggle. And there in the middle of this psalm, light breaks through and unlocks the door on the answer to life's external and internal pressures that come storming at us. Look with me at verses 14 to 16. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Friends, in the midst of panic, struggle, hopelessness, God had brought to David's mind the rock-solid, faith-fueling truth we all need when the pressures of life from without and within come hurling at us. Did you notice that phrase there? My times are in your hand. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Friends, David had come to a moment where he believed that God truly was sovereign over every moment, over every season of life. All of it coming to him was not by human accident, was not by meaningless coincidence, but by divine providence. 
And yet David certainly forgot this, didn't he? I mean, just read the psalm. We often forget that too, don't we? But there was one who came to this earth who never did. God's own son, Jesus Christ, eventually uttered those words from Psalm 31, verse 5. Look with me in Psalm 31, verse 5. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Friends, in Jesus' darkest and coldest night of the soul, when he faced the most demonically charged, sadistically slandered, hard-hearted men who slandered him, arrested him, and killed him on a criminal's cross. The most unjust suffering any human being could ever experience was experienced not by David, not by us, but by Christ, who never sinned and never did anything to separate his intimate fellowship with his father. Listen carefully to Luke 23. You can turn there if you'd like so you can see the connection. Luke 23 Verses 39 to 47. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Luke 23, 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Verse 46, then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. What is the point of Psalm 31? God can be trusted at all times, and he has given us assurance through the cross of Jesus Christ. God can be trusted at all times, And he has given us assurance through the cross of Jesus Christ. Friends, we can trust God in the midst of internal and external pressures. We can trust God with enemies on the outside and our sinful rebellion even on the inside. And how do we know that? Friends, Jesus committed his own life, body and soul to his Father in suffering for us. God raised him from the dead. And he now, Jesus, has paved the way for us to show us that our Heavenly Father can be trusted no matter what circumstances we face. David cried out there in verse 1, In your righteousness deliver me. What is God's righteousness? It's God's right and good concern for justice. That means it's good to call out to God at all times for justice. Jackson Wing tonight will preach from 1 Peter 2. And we're going to learn more about this, how Jesus is our exemplar of what it means to commit your life to this wonderful Heavenly Father. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 23, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Or as John read earlier in 1 Peter 4, 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In verse 5, in Psalm 31, David calls God his faithful God. What does that mean? That God's going to always be true to his word. No matter what circumstances you and I face, no matter how much you and I change, and our feelings change, and our thoughts change, God remains. He is sure. He is steady. He remains stable at all times. Friends, in Christ, God faithfully redeems us. He purchases us, our body, our soul, the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. Friends, every day we live is penned in his book before they even come to pass. Uh, To my non-Christian friend, you can only find true and lasting security in this life and for all eternity by committing your soul to this good God. Jesus committed his entire life to die in our place, bearing the punishment we deserve in the darkest moment of human history so that we wouldn't have to. And then God raised him from the dead. And now Jesus, as the author and finisher of our faith, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And as we confessed earlier, what is Jesus doing now? He's interceding for us. He's building his church And he has authority over heaven and earth. To my non-Christian friend, Jesus Christ is the rock and refuge you so desperately need. In Christ, he will be gracious to us and have compassion on our physical and emotional pain. Our great high priest has put on human flesh and lived in this fallen world, never sinned, suffered immensely, and now he intercedes for us and says, come to me. And make your request boldly to me. Friends, in Christ, God picks us back up off the floor of unbelief and puts us back on our feet in a broad place. In Christ, God's abundant goodness to us will never run out. God will never shortchange you the goodness he's promised to you. Christ showed the Father's love by dying for our sin in our place. Christ showed the Father's care by preserving his soul from staying in the grave. Christ showed the Father's sovereignty over evil and suffering by raising his son from the dead. So friends, how do we respond to God's steadfast love? To us. When the pressures on the outside and from within come crashing in, how do we respond to the character and promises of God? For his people. Look at me in verses 22 to 24 as we land the plane. Psalm 31, starting in verse 22. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful. And abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Friends, we respond to God's steadfast love in two ways. Here they are. Number one, 
We love the Lord with our life and show others how to do the same in their life. We love the Lord with our life and we show others how to do the same in their life. One brother on Twitter recently posted something particularly to fathers. And I thought it would be very apt in light of Father's Day coming up, but also in light of David's example of exhorting the saints to love their God. This is what he said. Fathers, don't just take your kids to church. Show them what it means to worship corporately. Sing along with the songs. Bow your head in prayer. Listen attentively to the sermon. Repent of your own sins. And afterwards, tell your children the work God did for you this week. They need to know that church for daddy isn't an empty routine, but a fountain of life. Oh, daddies, you want to leave a legacy? It's not a business, Fortune 500, biceps, or how many times that you can shoot a deer and burp at the same time. A true man of God is owned by the God who saved him. And kids will tell the truth about what mama and daddy really love. Friends, here at CCBC, may it become more and more normal for kids to look up and see moms and dads singing robustly, shouting God's praises, confessing their sins humbly, and excited to be with God's people in God's house on the Lord's day. It will make an impact that will last for eternity. Friends, that's true for all of us. And that's exactly what disciple-making is. Loving the Lord first in your life. Telling others what he's done for you and then helping others do the same. Number two, how do we respond to God's love in our life? We strengthen our hearts by trusting the one who holds our times in his hand. We strengthen our hearts by trusting the one who holds our times in his hands. There was once a story of a man that was viewed as insane and crazy because of his outcries, panic, and frustrations that he had with a watch. I'm not sure, John, you've seen that in the doctor's practice recently. Probably not. He found himself making and then unmaking watches by dashing one and then another one on the stone floor. As two concerned people got him in a safer room, one a physician, of course, the physician asked the disturbed man, how come you destroy your favorite watches so much as you love them? The man responded, tick, tick, ticking. And so I dashed it on the pavement. The ticking drove him mad. What lesson do we make of such an odd situation? When the watch is able to surrender itself to the maker, to the hand holding the watch, and measuring out the moments, it becomes a sight affecting indeed, but very beautiful, very sublime. We transfer our thoughts from the ticking of the watch to the hand 
that holds the watch. Tick, tick, tick. Those are our times of distress, our times of trouble, our times of fear, our times of feeling abandoned, our times of blowing it. Get your mind off the ticking of the hand and focus on the hand that is holding the watch. David said, my times are in his hand. And Jesus modeled that perfectly. His hand and the Father's hand can hold us up and no one can snatch us from our God's hand. You see, the hand of Jesus is the hand which rules our times. He regulates our life clock, Christ for and Christ in us. My times, your times are in his hands. Why can we trust the Lord at all times? Because he is strong, he is stable, and he is secure at all times. Why is it that we can call on him at all times and know that he hears us? Because he is just, he is merciful, he is gracious, and he is abundant in goodness. And he's proven that through his son, who committed his whole life on earth to his father, who is our father. He remained faithful to the son, and our father will remain faithful to us by preserving our faith and preventing us from falling away. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, our times are in your hand. The pressures from the outside, the pressures from within, Lord, left to ourselves, we panic, we're stressed, we're undone. And yet Christ committed his entire being to you in the darkest moment for our sin. And you raised him from the dead, showing us you are a trustworthy father. Lord, we pray even now, as we conclude our time, that we will rejoice. We will sing with confidence and conviction even in the world we're living in with full of idols and debaucherous lifestyles, that others may love their idols and their sin, but we will trust in you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.